Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. I haven't read any real clear politics this morning. I think I was reading political betting this morning, not real clear politics. Mm. Mm. At the end of a long week, every week is a long week in politics, but this has been a particularly long one. It began with Mrs May's trip to Washington. I've been preparing my lecture on the Arab-Israeli conflict this morning, so I'm afraid it's not in way as interesting as real clear betting or whatever it's yeah. like. <laughs> in the last 48 hours, the thing that everyone has been talking about is Donald Trump's ban on people coming into the United States from certain countries. We're going to come onto that at the end. We're not going to focus on that. And I'm afraid we're not going to talk at all this week about the big news overnight which is Donald Trump's nomination to the Supreme Court of Neil Gorsuch. I believe that's how we say it. We will be talking about that in future. This is a week in which we learned a new word, or at least I did. I'd never heard this word before. And again, I don't know how to say this. Bathmophobia? Maybe. Bathmophobia, which is the fear of, people define it differently, stairs and slopes. Or with some people it's handrails and stairs and slopes. Apparently, it's the reason why he, he who shall not be named, and Mrs. May had to hold hands because there are a couple of steps there. Um, it kind of explains that. It doesn't really explain how he got to be president of the United States, given it involves a certain amount of stair climbing, descending. I saw just now, we're not going to do a lot of this, but he is a limitless supply of interesting tweets. So this is a tweet from Donald Trump 2014, before he was even a possible candidate for president, in which he said, the way President Obama runs down the stairs of Air Force One, hopping and bobbing all the way, is so inelegant and unpresidential. Do not fall. <laughs> what a tough guy. What a, he's just like John Wayne I mean, incarnate. In Trump Tower, he has elevators to yeah. take him everywhere. Yeah. Well, literally everywhere. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. Laterally. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine him riding around the world. Oh, man. We're going to talk about what really may have been going on in that visit and then broaden it out from there to talk about global Britain and what, what actually are the choices here for Britain and particularly the Theresa May government in forging relationships post Brexit? And particularly, is she as dependent as it seems on the United States? So I'm joined by Helen. It's a Pleasure to welcome back Blaine Rangwala. We've got Aaron, we've got Chris, and I have to now say Brooke because we have Chris Bickerton as well. And we're going to come at the end to talk to Glenn in particular about what some of this might mean for the politics of the Middle East, because that's been slightly neglected in this, but it's central. But can we start with how you see the dynamics of the May-Trump relationship? Aaron, can I start with you? What's the power relationship there? I mean, who's, who's trying to get what from whom? In a way, you can see what Mrs. May, May wants from Trump. What, what does Trump insofar as he thinks about it at all, want from Britain? A little bit of kowtowing, I would imagine. So here's the dilemma that Britain faces, especially vis-a-vis the United States. The United States relies on Britain to a certain extent for its economic well-being. Britain has a fair amount of foreign direct investment in the United States, but the relationship is nowhere near symmetrical. It's nowhere near uh, reciprocal in that regard. And that's true of not just Britain vis-a-vis the United States, but it's true of the United States and really any other sovereign country in the world, with perhaps the exception of China. In that situation, you have a situation that is sometimes referred to as mutually assured economic destruction, that if one of those two countries was to try to undermine the other economically, it would lead to a downward spiral and a global depression. So the United States, because of its market size, 
and because of its economic productivity can, if it is negotiating with another state on bilateral terms, one-to-one, pretty much call the shots. This is not news in international political economy. And Britain is in a very tough spot now because it's not at all clear that the single market in Europe is a foregone conclusion by any stretch of the imagination. May can rely a little bit on old times and the special relationship and all of that. But the problem is, if you have two states and both stand to gain from a relationship, which is arguably the case with Britain and the United States in in trade relations. But one stands to gain much more, and that would be Britain. The other side knows this, presuming Donald Trump really does know something about the art of the deal. And so he can really stick it to May and the British government if he wants to, in terms of driving a very, very hard bargain. So that's the United States and Britain. But if it's Trump and May, is one of the things that he wanted from her this week of normalization cover. I mean, can she really provide that service for him, which is she makes him semi-respectable? Or does he not care? I don't know. He certainly cares He seemed to behave differently in the press conference. He he looked more calculating than sometimes we give him credit for, and that he did see that as an occasion to be kind of presidential. Yeah, he certainly cares about the way he's perceived, and he certainly cares about being seen as a statesman or statesmanlike. And the problem is, again, he's very mercurial. And so if something happens, right, like there's a debate in Parliament about whether or not he should actually be given a state visit and see the Queen, the orange tangerine goes to the Queen, right? And uh, he decides that May didn't do enough to protect him or something along those lines, you know, that that relationship isn't going to mean all that much. And I've said this repeatedly. I think Trump is a transactional thinker. You're only as good as what you've done for him lately. So she held his hands. There were two steps. He got down the two steps. He didn't fall. Right. And as I would have said uh, as a teenager, grody. Uh, What does that mean? Grody means gross. It's like you have to imagine it being said in like a California Valley Girl accent, like, ew, grody. (laughs) One of the things I found interesting about the press conference that May and Trump held is that we saw both of their rather distinctive ways of communicating. May has this style of really not saying much at all. And then when she sometimes says things, she says these enigmatic things like Brexit means Brexit, or it'll be a red, white and blue Brexit. So you you have to do an awful lot of trying to work out what she's really thinking. And she gives very little away in terms of what she says. And with Trump, you have no idea whether he means what he says or whether he recognises whether what he's saying is not true or not. So there were but, these, you, but you know what he said. Though. And there were these two interesting moments in the press conference. First, when Laura Kunzberg asked her question and he sort of said, well, you know, there goes that relationship. And then he later remarked on how he wanted a relationship with Vladimir Putin. And both of those, on the one hand, they get right to the heart of what Mrs. May is in Washington to do, which is to try to get Americans to say that there's some kind of special relationship. And then Trump says, well, maybe there isn't a relationship at all. And maybe the relationship I want with Britain is exactly the same as the relationship I want with Putin, which on the one hand is grotesquely undermining of what the British are trying to do. And on the other hand, you have no idea whether he is taking anything seriously at all. So they're two very interesting communicators, and I found it curious seeing them side by side. Glenn? Just on that substantive point, there is, of course, that reading of British foreign policy, which sees the UK as trying to drag the US into engagement in European affairs through the Russian threat, through the Soviet threat in previous decades, through the Russian stance today. It's the justification for NATO, which gives Britain its special role within this alliance. 
if that's the case, then one can see that fault line emerging over Russia, with May talking up the Putin phenomena, Trump in that sense trying to play it down, which is, I think, what he was doing in that conference with his rather non-fixed comments about, about the Russian relationship. But does that mean, I mean, when you say that fault line opens up, could that actually scupper this relationship between them? I mean, what's what, what's going to be the crunch point? So it's fine to do a press conference together, but what's going to be, we, we know what Britain wants from this, but what's going to be the crunch point for Trump? It all depends in that sense on how seriously one takes the Trump-Putin allegation as such, to what extent one sees that as actually a, a significant dynamic within what happens within US foreign policy over coming years. I think it's more complicated than that because I think the thing that's been left out so far is the question of the EU and that what I think is most striking about what's emerged over the last sort of a bit less than a week is is that Trump is quite serious about confrontation with Germany. Is is that this was not really sort of flagged up in terms of his rhetoric during the election campaign. It was very much if you said which of the two states have got most to lose from Trump winning the presidency, you would have said Mexico and China, because that sort of two states his campaign rhetoric was directed against. But if you look at what's been said by his advisors, including his trade advisor, his name I think is Peter Navarro. Yes. Mm. It's been very confrontational with Germany about its trade surplus. It's been very confrontational with Germany blaming Germany for the undervaluation as Navarro sees it of the euro and I think that what you can see is is that there is one way of looking at this which says that Trump actually wants to play very tough with Germany and see if he can essentially cause some chaos in the EU itself around the German relationship and now in that sense May is useful for him because Brexit provides a critique of the problems of the European Union. He's quite keen, you saw in the press conference, on making arguments about the importance of the nation state and seeing that as something that Brexit represents and something that he represents. And he's also going to attack Germany over the question of Germany's military spending and not meeting the 2% NATO benchmark. So in that sense, Britain is kind of a bit player in what is going to be a much bigger struggle. That goes back to the very terms on which Britain first tried to get into the European economic community in the first place, which was essentially to, as Charles de Gaulle said, in vetoing Britain's membership to act as a Trojan horse for American interests. That actually is what the Kennedy administration wanted Macmillan to do. So that there's a long history to this. How is Britain used in a confrontation that's between the US? Then it was between the US and France. Now I think it's between the US and Germany. So I want to come back in a second to this question about the EU in particular, but I just want to ask Chris or anyone else who wants to join in about the domestic political implications of this, because there is also, I think, an, a large unknown about how the British electorate are likely to respond to Theresa May's attempts to, let's put it bluntly, ingratiate herself with the administration. It's got more complicated in the last few days, but certainly it was clear what was coming out of that press conference in Washington. And I don't think anyone knows, there's been a bit of polling, so let's not talk about the visit to the Queen, but there was a striking poll yesterday that said that by a significant margin, people were in favour of the invitation to Trump to Britain. And it's possible that some of the sort of more over-the-top reactions from the people who are against it have drowned out the extent to which a significant part of the British public are okay with this. But Labour is hoping that they can land a blow on her by claiming that this is part of the bargain basement Britain strategy. I mean, this is Trump as kind of corporate slash and burner, the guy who's just going to undercut everything. It's all about the bottom line. Sucking up to a Trump administration is part and parcel of post-Brexit Britain being a kind of tax haven, low-cost, offshore economy. Do you think that has any purchase domestically? 
there is something odd about the bargain basement slogan because people like bargain basements. You get bargains there. And it's not obvious to me that this is a great slogan. Um, They've used it a lot the, in the last week. It's very striking. No, Corbyn, who's not a kind of slogan guy, he's latched onto it. No, absolutely. I mean, this is the line they're going to take. On the one hand, it may have some traction with a broader electorate. But I wonder about two things. And one of them is that when you're going to try and mount an effective campaign against the government, you need all the bits of your operation to be working. And Labour is in a position right now where all the bits of its operation are not working. It's still a pretty chaotic political party right now. Corbyn finds it difficult to lead. And the party is obviously split on what tactics, what strategy to pursue vis-a-vis Brexit more generally, and that came out yesterday in the debate in Parliament over and, the bill and about ba- Article bargain 50. basement doesn't cover over those cracks at a- all. Absolutely. So th- there's one problem there. I wonder about another problem, which is that people are nervous that negotiations about a trade deal in America will have a lot to do with pharmaceutical companies and having access to British markets and people create stories about how that will undermine the NHS in its present configuration. And you might think that's great from the Labour Party's point of view, because people still identify the Labour Party with the NHS. But to some extent, we're in the boy who cries wolf territory here, that at every general election, the Labour Party says, if you vote Conservative, then the NHS, as we know, it will be destroyed. And that card didn't go down especially well at the last election. And if Labour is going to brandish that card again, it's not clear whether, you know, the extent to which diminishing returns are setting in. So it may be the best attack line that they've got, and clearly there are some people who will be sympathetic to it, but whether it's that good an attack line, I doubt it. And stating the obvious, the trouble with crying wolf is when the wolf turns up, people don't believe you. The other just quick brief thing I'll throw in there is Trump met with heads of major pharmaceutical companies yesterday, and uh, during the campaign, he talked about negotiating tougher prices with the pharmaceutical companies. And after the meeting yesterday, he said, no, uh, that actually doesn't seem the way forward. We're going to go with uh, lower taxes and uh, less regulations and hope that brings prices down. So... I think on the point that um, Chris made, the other dimension of it is is that you've seen a number of Labour MPs who previously looked like they were going to back Article 50, vote for it in the House of Commons, who now look like they're not going to, and making the argument that actually now that the meaning of Brexit has been changed by Trump. But the striking thing about that is, is, is that the whole electoral problem that Brexit has confronted the Labour Party with just seems to have been thrown out of the window in making that argument. It's kind of like the idea that there was a referendum and there was an outcome to the referendum and that actually Parliament potentially defying that referendum result is not a political problem. It's something that a number of Labour people who are not very keen at all on leaving the European Union were very focused on and now they seem a lot less focused on it but that problem hasn't gone away. What is Labour going to do if a significant number of its MPs end up voting against Article 50? particularly if they are MPs who actually voted for having this referendum in the first place. And I think it is true that we really don't know about British public opinion and Trump at the moment. There are two possibilities here, one of which is that a sort of revulsion against him, which you see it in the the liberal press and it's, it's everywhere online, but is actually quite widespread and it cuts across party lines. The other is that in this partisan age, Trump is just another partisan issue and that the more that liberals bleat about him, the more that the other side thinks he's not so bad. I mean, I just don't think we know, do we? Glenn, do you have any sense of this? I think many people still think, give him a chance, as it were. He's done 
some things already, of course. We all know what he's done already. But we're still in the opening days of what will be a four-year presidency. I know, it is, it is so less than, fewer than, is less just... than fewer than two weeks. I think there's another thing going on here, sort of related to the point that I made before, is, is, is that once you get the liberal outrage, if we're going to call it, that position saying, oh, we can just ignore the referendum in Britain and saying that something's more important than that, then that's very easy to then seem like the same people are saying, oh, we can ignore the election result in the United States and pretend that Donald Trump isn't a normal or legitimate president and will be outraged by everything that he did. Now, that may be fine in terms of American politics because it doesn't backplay in British politics, but it's not when it gets tied into the, oh, the referendum was meaningless, the fact that 52% voted for Brexit can be discarded, that becomes a problem. So let's just broaden this out now and talk about British foreign policy, but also British identity post-Brexit. But to go back to what Helen mentioned earlier, so so the other Donald, I don't think anyone's call, ever called this Donald the Donald, Donald Tusk, no, uh, but he's the other Donald, one of the other Donalds, issued a statement yesterday to the 27 member states of the EU, now that Britain number 28 is on the way out, more or less saying Brexit is a morality tale for us, or it's, we must learn the lesson here. And I think the implication being, see what she had to do in Washington, she held his hand. Uh, which is if you are a sovereign state in this world, you are basically just kind of small fry to be chewed over by the superpowers. The only thing that could possibly stand up to China and the United States is the EU. So it's kind of like we hang together or they're just going to gobble us up, watch them gobble up Britain. And it's quite, I thought it was quite a powerful, he also said we're going to have to do some pretty dramatic and radical things to show that we have that power. So we're not there yet. But I thought it was quite a sort of powerful message. I'm not sure because it kind of conflates economic questions, I think, with military questions. I think that's one of the problems with it. And you can see, I, I can't remember who it was. It was the president of the Eurogroup, I think, either yesterday or the day before, saying that what the EU needed to do if the US didn't want to deal with it is deal with China. But that point was put entirely in terms of trade arrangements. There's much, much more at stake at this moment in time than trade arrangements. You know, there's basic military and security questions and the EU has no military capability as the EU is about to lose its most significant military member and neither of the two main states spend 2% of GDP as NATO members are supposed to on defence. So I think if you just reduce it to the economic question then you can kind of make the argument that Tusk was made but you know the world is much more complicated and dangerous. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Dangerous than that. And Aaron, if you put it I'll put it bluntly, but if the sort of dilemma for Britain post-Brexit is there are two possibilities here, one of which is that there is greater freedom of manoeuvre to get better deals, and the other of which is Britain is no longer a significant enough player to get better deals. Which one, where, where do you see the balance? Very much in the latter. 
side of things. I agree with Tusk that if you are not going to be coupled up in a multilateral grouping of some sort and you are a state, a large state, fifth largest economy in the world, but a state of 60 million, that yeah, you will be a plaything for the Chinas and, and the United States. Even if you have nuclear weapons that Even, make any difference? Yeah, no, that makes very little difference. Should we just get rid of them? Uh, well, there's oh, evidence. I'm, I'm broadening out. The You're broadening it out. I mean, I can talk about how, uh, you know, there's evidence that nuclear weapons actually don't get you much in the way of coercive compellence capability. Uh, there's a fair amount of evidence on, on that, right? They're good for deterrence, but not much else. Now, the thing about the EU, militarily speaking, is, and this evidence is probably out of date now, but there has been studies done by people like Seth Jones and Barry Posen that show that when the United States acts in a way that is highly unilateral and contrary to EU interests, you see a flurry of EU military cooperation in the aftermath of episodes like that. But that was before 2008. That was before the current environment where you do see, for lack of a better term, an upsurge of global right-wing populism in countries in Europe. And so I'm not necessarily sure the EU can hang its hat on that. But losing the number one military power, which was Great Britain from the EU, and having a mercurial, unpredictable leader in the United States, if that doesn't do it in terms of trying to get countries in the EU to commit more to their own defense, uh, I'm not sure what will. So Glenn, do you think that the EU is, in this world of superpowers, the only kind of scaled up organization that can resist? I mean, does Britain, is Britain too small in this context? Yes, I think Tusk's letter reflects the judgment of the primacy of economic power over military power, that in some very real way he would invert the proposition put by Helen earlier that uh, in some ways at least the security dynamics at least draw the US into engagement with Europe. If Europe acts as a stable trading bloc, if it can reform itself around those ideas, then it becomes a a power in global affairs as a result of that without consideration of the security issue. That in a very real way, in that sense, at least Britain's military might, if it can be called that, and I don't think it really can be called that, is has become increasingly redundant within a Europe in which in which economic considerations have taken primary primary role. But that may be true. I mean, I'm not particularly making an argument about Britain's military capability. I think in some sense it, it is pretty it is pretty limited. But even if you just take Tusk on his own terms about the economic questions, it's entirely disengaged from the economic problems that the the eurozone faces. I mean, they're about to have a, a huge row about the direction of monetary policy given inflationary pressure in the eurozone. You've got spreads in the periphery, bond markets rising again. You've got youth unemployment in you know, the southern Mediterranean wiping out um, a generation. This is not an economy, the EU as a whole, that is, or the eurozone part of it, that is in anything like good shape. No, but to defend him, he does say there are two parts of your argument. One, if you're Britain, look what happens. You're out there on your own. Second, we can do something to scale, but we've got to completely change the way we operate. I mean, it is a call for reform. It is, but they haven't got any... I mean, I'd, what I'd say they is may not they, have a plan. they haven't got any idea about how they're going to deal with the problems that the eurozone generates. And at the moment, that the centrifugal dynamics in the eurozone are stronger than the centripetal dynamics within the eurozone. And Chris, to go back to Theresa May and her speech a few weeks ago about global Britain, and also some of the things she said about the possibility of... Britain having a new leadership role, and it's it's a horrible phrase, but it's that Anglosphere thing, the idea that this is now possibly a world in which the English-speaking peoples once again can sort of come together. And if that's the case, well, we're English, we're not just the English-speaking peoples, we, we kind of invented it. So we can play a leading part. Does that does that mean anything? I'm not, I mean, it feels kind of out of date. I don't think it means anything at all. One of our colleagues in 
our department here at Cambridge, uh, Duncan Bell, is, you know, is the expert on the long backstory behind this kind of thing. He wrote a book called The Idea of Greater Britain a few years ago, which is about the discussion among Victorians of some kind of transcontinental state based on the British Empire. And, and it has to involve Canada, who probably don't want to play this time around. Canada round. and Australia and South Africa and, and, and so on. And then in the 20th century, some of these ideas got revived in the form of imperial federation or imperial preference, and they increasingly took on an overtly racist dynamic. And that's the backstory to the language of the Anglosphere that sprang up around the time of the Iraq War a dozen years ago. Nowadays, there's this extraordinary new word, Kanzuk, which is Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. And politicians, especially people like Liam Fox, are familiar with this word and think that the future is Kanzuk. And the idea here is that it would be more than a trade deal, but less than a political unification of some kind. But again, no one has a coherent view of just what it would be. And on the one hand, we've got an idea that floats around and has floated around on the fringes of the Conservative Party for a long time, but now one of the key political actors, Liam Fox, is associated with it, although he's also very keen on subservience to the uh, United States. But on the other hand, there's next to no interest from Australia or Canada or these other places in this kind of line that I think some of the Kanzuk boosters will point to one New Zealand party leader or something who once said something vaguely sympathetic about it. Sure, Australians would like some kind of trade deal, but um, this is one of those ideas that comes across as massive wishful thinking on the part of the people who who are pushing it. So global Britain, which is, I think, becoming one of Theresa May's catchphrases, and the implication is global Britain does not just mean subservience to the United States. So what are the options here? So New Zealand is probably not going to save the day. So what what are Britain's choices? Well, I mean, the, the, the pause there suggests that they're limited, right? Going going back to what Chris was talking about, I mean, there's not only that. What was that? Kanzuk. I mean, there is a history of Anglosphere, English-speaking sphere cooperation, really since the World Wars. So you have Yakuza, which is not to be confused with the Yakuza, the Japanese mafia, but Yakuza, the UK-United States agreement on signals intelligence sharing that expanded to include Canada and Australia, and New Zealand. So you get five eyes. You have the ABC armies, right, the American, British, Canadian, and Australian armies that work together to increase interoperability and communication capacity above and beyond what NATO does. So there is really infrastructure there on the defense side of thing. I would again say, though, that this doesn't look very hopeful in a Trump era for however long that era lasts. I mean, as one person pointed out the other day, the Trump White House is currently leaking not so much like a sieve, but like a, like a bucket with the bottom cut out of it. So if you want to share intelligence secrets with Washington, D.C., and hope that they're not going to wind up in Moscow, be my guest. Similarly, right, uh, the ABCA armies, it's pretty plain ever since the invasion of Afghanistan that the United States views other armies and other militaries working with it, at least during the kinetic phase, that is to say the phase where you're killing people and blowing stuff up as a hindrance because other countries don't have the capabilities that the United States has and they have tighter rules of engagement. Now, in the post-war stage, when it comes to doing all the dirty work of trying to clean up the mess, yes, then assistance is welcome, but that's not really a good deal for countries other than the United States. So yeah, that seems to me to be a weak read and a weaker read now than it was even 10 years ago so that or was, two weeks ago. So that sounded like when the original question being, what are the options 
Limited, right? Limited would be the shorter Short version of what I just said. The long version was good too. I just yeah, but limited probably would have saved us all time. <laughs> okay. Perhaps slightly more focused on what May is trying to do at the moment. One of the core distinctions, of course, between the way in which British foreign policy is going to be set up compared to the way in which US foreign policy has been articulated over recent weeks has been about defence of the international trading system. And I think in that respect, Britain has positioned itself as being the defender of the global trading arrangements, which the US has now marginalised, denigrated, put in the can. So in that sense, the US's defence of the WTO, defence of global trade, can't be assured in the near future. Britain's role in that respect, I think, is trying to be positioning itself as being the architect, the, the designer, the, so the who, defender of this, of this global system. And in that context, who is Britain speaking for then? If Britain is the, is the leader of the other side, who's, who's on that side? In that sense, at least, it's cut itself off from its other base, which is, of course, the European Union in that respect, because the European Union was not just about trade within Europe, but it was also about global trade. Now, that remains the transatlantic bridge idea that has dominated British foreign policy for many decades. But if the UK has pulled up one side of that, as it has done, then its ability to act as that bridge between um, different trading blocks as a foundation for global trading arrangements is so much more limited. I think the crucial issue here is actually China, because China is the state with the biggest interest in maintaining the multilateral trading order as it presently exists. And and interestingly, is is that the British government under the Cameron's leadership was very keen on a UK-China relationship, including being willing to antagonise the Obama administration quite considerably over participation in the Asian Development Bank. Theresa May seems a little bit less sure about the economic relationship with China and there's a contradiction there because if she does embrace it and says okay the UK defends a global multilateral order that means making an alliance with I think with China over that but that is very difficult in terms of the relationship then with Donald Trump's America because clearly he wants an economic confrontation with China I mean I think Germany's number two on his list but China's number one then it may not be possible to reconcile those positions at all. Of course the place that Theresa May went after Washington was Ankara. And next week, actually, we're going to talk a bit more about Turkey, because we've talked about it a little bit in the past, but I think we should look in more detail. And our colleague Aisha Zarakol is going to come back and talk to us about that. But there's a wider question I want to ask Glenn, because this is, this is really the area on which you are an expert, which is, what does this mean for the politics of the Middle East, and particularly actually for a country like Britain, how we should be thinking about the, the dynamics there? But I think it is genuinely the case that things are up in the air. I mean, the geopolitical order looks more uncertain than it has for a long time. Relationships are changing all the time. The focus, as we've said this week, has been on the question about people's ability to travel into the United States. But there is a much wider issue here, which is about relationships with some of those countries that are now on the ban list, but more widely, and including Israel, what a Trump administration means for that, and then how Britain positions itself in those relationships. So what do you think, what's at stake at the moment here in terms of the politics of the Middle East and Britain's role? One thing that I don't think we often see in British public discourse is the strength of the links between Britain and many of the Gulf states. That Saudi Arabia, Oman, the smaller Gulf states are still very linked in with a British foreign policy. They do very much integrate their own political administrations with British advisers still. They get a lot of British military coordination. And so in that respect, at least, there remains a role for the UK in its foreign policy in coordinating with those states, which have still considerable significance in in global affairs. And what does the Trump administration do to that relationship? And that relationship is troubled in the, under the Trump administration, 
there doesn't seem to be much of a sense of how to run Gulf policy at the moment under under the Trump administration. It comes out most overtly in its stance towards Iraq and Iran, the fact that both of them were put on the agenda for countries from which um, visitors cannot be taken into the US. So the British role becomes one of coordination across the Gulf in a way that the US is no longer able to do. That's particularly the case with Iran, because of course, so much of the Trump foreign policy that was directed at the Middle East was about the Iran deal. It was about the critique of the Vienna deal over Iranian nuclear disarmament. Now, Britain has remained a defender of that, as the European states are generally. That enables the UK to take a significant role in the mediation across the Gulf in the way that the US no longer can do. But is Britain going to be put on the spot on this? I mean, are there going to be some really tough choices? We'll come on to Israel in a second. But if Trump does try to undo that deal, this is another question about where Britain might find itself on the other side. I think that's... Might Theresa May have to defend the deal against Trump? I think that will be the case. I think that there is no real alternative for the British except to uphold its position, which is that the deal has been effective in curtailing Iran's nuclear ambitions, that it has been a deal that's, that works in practice. There's quite a heavy British investment in supporting that. They were an in, original instigator of the deal in the first place. So now to turn tail and say, no, it's no, it was a flawed deal would be too far a step for Britain to go. So in that way, at least, you have a significant extent to which the British remain a, a moderating force within a region that otherwise could be a significant arena of tension. I think there are two things that are, are important here, uh, in addition to what um, Glenn has said. The first is, is is just the fundamental geopolitical fact about the Middle East at the moment is, is the position of Russia in Syria and the fact that Russia has peeled off a NATO ally in Turkey to negotiate a ceasefire in Syria. Whether that will hold is an entirely different question. But that is a fundamental transformation of the basic geopolitics of the Middle East. The second, I think, is this is that actually, of all the things that Trump has done so far, the place where we so far see no departure is in the Middle East. And two bits of evidence, I think, for that. First of all is, is that the US is carrying on bombing Yemen, which is something that the Saudis have been obviously first and foremost participating in. But secondly, and I think this is significant, it's kind of got lost in the understandable outrage about aspects of Trump's ban on the people from the seven countries, Muslim majority countries coming in, is is that list is Obama's list. They were the countries that were put under visa restriction in 2015. They did not include any of the Gulf states. And in that sense, Trump, the candidate, particularly during the Republican nomination process, who was pretty confrontational in his rhetoric with Saudi Arabia, has leapt immediately into line in terms of the existing position of the US policy on Saudi Arabia. I mean, the list does originate with the Obama administration. The big difference is, of course, that detentions at US airports were extending to people who already had either green cards or visas uh, within the United States, which created a whole bunch of confusion between Customs and Border Patrol agents on the one hand and the federal courts that were ordering injunctions to get these detentions stopped and, in fact, created kind of a mini constitutional crisis because the CBP, the Customs and Border Patrol agents, seemed to be ignoring those judicial orders on behalf of orders they were getting from Washington. Washington, D.C. I think Helen is largely right in that there is a fair amount of carryover between the Obama administration and the Trump administration. I think the biggest difference, though, 
is that Trump is going to face some major contradictions because of the overtures to Russia. So if you want to be carpet bombing or whatever kind of belligerent militaristic phrase you want to use, carpet bombing ISIS in Syria, well, that puts you on the same side as Iran and uh, also kind of puts you on the same side as Russia. But if you also are serious about getting rid of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which is the awkward term used for the Iran nuclear deal, Russia is very much in favor of that, as are the other P5 plus one, including Germany. So the United States would be isolated in, in that regard. So there's a lot of contradictions going on here, uh, to say nothing of the fact of what Trump is going to want to do vis-a-vis Kurdish units who are fighting against ISIS. If he wants to back them, then he's got a problem with Turkey, which arguably gives him a problem with Russia. It's a, it's a very messy situation. I think that is one step behind where we stand at the moment, in Syria at least, where the US essentially has a limited role. Mm-hmm. The Russian role has taken supremacy over the last few weeks. There's there's no real significant role left for the US in Syria, and I think they recognise that. So in that sense, at least, the, ISIS, the struggle against ISIS is now essentially a Russian-Syrian venture, backed in Iraq to some extent by Iran. But really, the withdrawal of the US presence in that context is, I think, one that means that it's got no future role. So they've ceded that role. The Russians have been the central player, and you have no way left for the US to re-engage with that situation. And that, if true, and I know he's not to believe you, is a huge change. Absolutely. And this comes, this, out, this comes out in the Astana talks where the US just isn't yeah. a player in, in the talks I that are going that on. One the of the things that's time. happened in the last few months, because so many people have been so worked up about so many things, is, is they have missed that something of huge consequence has happened in terms of the Middle East, in terms of the balance of power. It is just humiliating for American credibility what has happened over Syria in terms of not only Russia making an agreement with Turkey to negotiate this ceasefire, but with Iran too. And we have to accept that cuts across the two administrations. So that's not something that happened 12 days ago. No, no, quite the contrary. And, and of course, that, that leaves the British role as well without any presence. So British foreign policy is not about Syria anymore, except in that very narrow sphere of refugee protection. OK, so Glenn, I'm going to do that thing because this is the last question and we're going to have to give a short answer and you'd save the sort of unanswerable huge question to last, which is Israel. But I just want to ask, not specifically in relation to Trump, but Britain, on the range of things where Britain might find itself in a very awkward spot, this this government, the Theresa May government, do you think there's a possibility that the Trump administration's attitude to Israel puts May in a very difficult position? I think it put May in a difficult position when the UN Security Council, with British support, passed the resolution 2334 last December condemning Israeli settlements. And the fact that the British then sided with Trump in his critique of that resolution, which they themselves voted for, showed the way in which they were willing to turn tail on Israel. That the historic British position of being against Israeli settlement of the West Bank in favour of the two-state solution, I think in that sense was a decisive moment that the British, by criticising the very position that they had previously held, showed that they were willing to sacrifice that position for good relations with the Trump administration and its policy towards Israel, realising that that was too significant an issue for the Trump administration to be seen to be different from it. And that really was, I think, a, a turning moment in British policy towards towards Israel. Thank you all. We're going to come back, as I said, to the question of Turkey in particular next week. We're going to look at, I suppose, what's at the back of people's minds at the moment, which is, is democracy itself in real trouble? Um, and we're going to talk about Turkey as well as the United States. Do please follow us on Twitter, tppodcast underscore. 
What we're going to do there is post links to some of the things we talked about here, people you might not have heard of, people I might not have heard of, that some people around the table have mentioned will do links to their writing so you can see what we've been talking about. You'll find that there. Do subscribe on iTunes. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. I said, in his defense, you are more likely to be killed by a set of stairs than ISIS in the United States by, in, by, by, a, by a magnitude. Could you, could you, don't, that, you're yeah. wasting all the good materials. <laughs> well, I can use it again. <laughs> Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.